Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Bookburners, Season 4, Episode 20. Liam drew the stupid bloody plant from his backpack and tossed it on the table. He carried the thing with him when he traveled, because the one fact he really knew about plants was that they liked to be left alone with sunlight and fresh water, and he didn't want to give this one a false impression that they were friends. He stopped short of adding bleach to the watering can, but only just. Why did it have to look like a carnivorous plant? The mouth didn't do anything, just the leaves. At least it hadn't done anything yet. But the maitress liked her jokes, didn't she? The purple leaves or fronds or whatever drifted toward him when he drew close, as if his skin had some magnetic pull. But Sal was right even though he wished she wasn't, even though she hadn't actually been the one to give the order. She even started to say, you don't have to, as if he really didn't, as if they had another choice. I do, though, he said. Hey, you've been after me to grow up, right? And he reached his hand into the plant. As the leaves crawled and braided up his arm, as green thoughts dribbled into his own like sap, as leaves reached for Yusef, He had just enough control to keep himself from screaming, he hoped. Then he tumbled into green. Yusef's mind shaped itself around him as a jungle full of gray, moving, moss-covered stone buildings, temples turning to seek an absent sun. The air lay hushed and heavy, and Liam knew if he spoke, he would be seen, and the tigers of this mind that lurked in camouflage on branches overhead would plunge down and devour him. He held a rope of grass leading off between trees from the wood back to his own body, and if that were cut, he would wander in here lost until the tigers came. Asante's mind would look like this, so dense, so overgrown, so full. He could search in here for centuries without finding what he sought. Fortunately, he didn't have to. Other seekers had come here first and left a trail. A river of blood ran through the air. Great. It branched and wriggled and split to strands. It plunged into the stone towers and bored holes in colossal trees. Back in the physical world, the trails of blood the Angstrom's homunculus had slipped into Yusef's ears and eyes and nose were hair thin. But here, the blood ran thick as a torrent. Ingrid's mind, or Gala's, was inside that river, searching and churning. If he traced that river back to them, he might be able to slip inside their mind, find out what they wanted. And if he was lucky, stop them. If he wasn't lucky, his rope would snap, they'd find him and take him apart with their magic, or cast him from Yusef's mind. Or creep into his mind, too, and use him like a puppet. Liam tried not to think about that part. It didn't work. He caught the grass rope in his teeth, chose a tree with thick branches and sturdy vines, and began to climb. Halfway to the top, the vine he was holding tore. 
His stomach lurched into his throat. He clawed at the tree's slick bark, but it crumbled beneath his fingernails and he fell. On the way down, he wondered how you'd die in real life if you broke your neck falling here. His ribs found a tree branch first. The impact robbed him of breath. His teeth crunched into the grass rope and green sap filled his mouth. He gagged, but did not let go of the branch or the rope. When he looked up, he saw the blood river twisting through the air not five feet away. He could make that jump. Almost certainly. His ribs ached as he forced himself to stand. He judged the gap again and told himself he felt good about his chances. He gripped the grass rope, gathered himself, and leaped. His foot slipped as he left the branch, and an ancestor monkey crouched in the back of his mind informed him that he was about to die. The arc was wrong, not enough momentum, not enough length. He strained, he reached, the river passed overhead and the ground opened its arms for him, but at the last instant his fingers skimmed the blood, and his arm lurched against its socket and he was swept away. The jungle coursed past. As the blood carried him, the images it had torn from Yusef's mind spun through Liam's. Liam recognized schematics, cave charts, diagrams, the library's secrets, and its security. He swam upstream, straining against the current. He tasted a metallic frustration, not his own, and glimpsed a room of porcelain and granite, thick towels, an open door, a bathroom with a round tub full of blood and Gala lying in that blood with her head back, her hair trailing in it. Her eyes rolled up so only the whites were visible, while a jeweled lotus floated on the surface of the blood, crackling with power. In a corner of the room, in a silver cage, Yusef's daughter Kesrin lay curled around herself, her brow painted with burning black ink. And Ingrid, pacing, snapped a question in Swedish, and Gala frowned, and the current grew and tossed him away and swept him back. They were searching, yes, but for more than security, more than plans. He let the river of Gala's power drag him away through the whirling jungle until they came to a stone tower greater than the rest, and corkscrewed in and down and in and down, past guards and wards and hypnotic suggestions Yusef had planted in himself against just this sort of intrusion. But Liam had not anticipated Gala's power, implacable and vicious, perfect, penetrating, or the lotus that let her think faster than his unconscious mind could respond. So the stones split and the traps closed on air, and in a rush they burst on this secret Yusef had kept, and perhaps not even known he kept. Passed down from librarian to librarian since the first books kindled the first fires. Liam was far down and traveling so fast. His rope frayed, but he held on. And when the final gate opened, he saw. Sal followed Liam down the winding stair and the rest of the team trailed after. The stone here was rough and her fingers hooked in chisel marks. She did not know how far down they had come, and she was positive three of the turns they'd taken to reach this place had led them down halls that had been walled off before. Liam touched books on shelves in sequence, adjusted the positions of scrolls, led them along one of seven different golden paths woven into a long black rug. And as he did, the library walls shifted. The whole time, he hadn't stopped talking. We were asking the wrong question. He skipped stairs. She didn't need to be told to skip the same ones. We didn't have the data to ask the right one, not really. Even though now that we have the answer, it's easy to construct a path from the data we had that would have led us here. It's an inference problem. We didn't know how to filter possibilities for relevance. She'd asked him to slow down three times already, so she gave up. What questions should we have been asking? The stairwell ended, it just ended, not in a hall or a chamber, but in a solid stone wall. Liam blew dust off the blank rock and groped along its surface his fingers exploring chiseled divots and natural fissures in the living stone. The Library of Alexandria last burned down 1,400 years ago, or 15 or whatever. So the librarians ran away and brought their books with them. And then they rebuilt, right? Sal crossed her arms. Right? So? So where did a bunch of fugitive librarians in the 5th century find the resources to build a vast underground complex? They started small and expanded over time. Does it look like that to you? 
Do you think they just, what, added rooms here and there when they needed them? Is that how you end up with a 10-story hidden staircase this big going straight down? Okay, what's your answer? They didn't build the library, he said. They found it. He pushed, and a 20-foot-tall section of wall slid back without a sound and swung aside, and light flooded forth. Beyond the door lay an empty room, a cube of softly glowing alabaster with the door at the far end. The door was likewise alabaster, but outlined in silver. Behind the translucent walls, great machines made of shadow turned. The center of the door flushed a familiar shade of pink. When Sal entered the room, her footsteps made no sound. Shadows clustered on the floor near her feet. What is this? Liam? Asante answered for him, her expression as close to awe as Sal had ever seen. This is... I have never seen anything like it before. She walked toward the door, reluctant and eager at once. But uh, I suspected. Okay, Sal said. Someone please start making sense. Our world was the angel's project, yes? That's what Hannah said, and your brother. A place where will and form are set apart. An island of certainty in an ocean of magic. It stands to reason there would be struts to prop it up, pillars of the world. The shadows gathered under her, too. This is one. That's what the angstroms want. Sal felt the weights in her own mind slide into place, inevitable and slow as the machines behind the walls. They have the Lotus. If they control this too, they'll be able to control how things break. And where? Who survives and who does not? They'll protect themselves while it all comes apart. And now they know all the library secrets, the traps and how to get around them, the lines of defense. They have the manpower advantage between the blood homunculi and those monsters from Rome. And we are stuck down here with whatever's behind this door. It's bad, Liam agreed. Could we use it against them? Asante blinked. That would be like using an atomic bomb to break up a fistfight on a raft. It might work, but it would almost certainly kill us and the boat. The raft in this analogy being the world, Menchu said. He sounded tired. The Swedes won't wait. They'll send one sister in with demons at her side, with the other sister feeding her power from a safe distance. That's the plan, Liam said. At dawn, I think. They had some magic reason. The lotus is stronger when the sun's up, something like that. So we beat them, Grace said, as if nothing in the world was simpler. When she comes, we hit her until she stops. And then we go after her sister. Sal shook her head. It won't work. They're using the lotus. They're shifting time. You missed that homunculus. Only once. What if there are five of them? I could handle five. Is there a number you couldn't handle? Do you think they might have an idea what that number is after all the time they spent with the man who built your curse? Do you think they'd come here if they couldn't beat you? Grace glared at her. Sal, Grace said, warning, but Sal didn't listen. They'll be ready for you here. No. Liam, is there a path to the surface? Some way Grace could slip out undetected? He frowned. Uh, I think so. Sal, I'm staying. That's what they're counting on. They won't expect you to leave us, go to the hotel, and stop Gala on that end. You go. Give the rest of us a chance. We'll hold the line. She didn't say as long as we can. That part was understood. That's an order, Grace. Live and save our butts. Liam led them to the exit, a narrow pipe with a ladder rising through stone. It leads to a grocery store or storage room, and usually if you tried to climb it, the walls would crush you. But I think I fixed that. Grace looked at him. Thank you. And that's the look you give me when you want some space. Yes. Uh, well then, he shot them a not-quite-mock salute. Toodles. There was little room inside the pipe once the door was closed, and no light save the chemical lamp hung around Grace's neck. Sal felt half intimate, half smothered. This was a massive gullet, and they were being swallowed down. She took Grace in her arms, and Grace took her, and they tried to be together here, surrounded by stone and dust and with sunlight far away. 
I'll never have a plan again. Don't you dare, Grace said. I like it when you have plans. Come back to me. I will. Sal was the first to break the circle of their arms because someone had to, and she didn't want to force that someone to be Grace. And Grace began to climb. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Four. Sal took her gun and sword and joined Liam at the bottom of the stairs. We're good? He nodded. I turned on the defenses and Father Manchu's on the controls. I still can't believe he was willing. We've all done a lot of things we never thought we could. Sal said, that's a crisis for you, makes you grow. How are you doing? After letting a monster inside my head so I could sneak into another monster's head? He adjusted his silvered brass knuckles. Better than I expected. You? She tested the weight of the sword. She'll be fine. Grace walked to the Ritz. She'd considered cabs, considered burning the candle and sprinting across town through a frozen pre-dawn city. But both options had their costs. She did not know how their enemies were watching the library. Enstrom money could buy a lot of eyes, even without magic. She'd be more flexible on foot than in a cab. And the Lotus gave its wielder power over time, which suggested that it offered some sense of time's passage. When she burned, they would know. Besides, it wasn't that far to the hotel. And though she'd lived for just under a hundred years, she'd never strolled through Alexandria. Around her, the city unfolded. Trolleys rolled down streets gilded with the dust of night. A thick ground fog pooled and eddied around her legs. Maybe this was normal here, or maybe an accident of weather, or maybe it was magic. She crossed roads when locals crossed them. In the old days, she could get the feel of a city by walking through its mornings and watching faces. Cars had put an end to that, trapped human beings under metal and glass. But at this time of day, so early some people would call it late, there were still people on the sidewalk, sweeping out their shops, opening steel shades. She traded nods, smiles, considered buying what looked like fried dough from a sidewalk vendor, then realized she hadn't changed money when they crossed the border. Oh, well, you can eat after you don't die. Sal was back there waiting. McCole in Grace's mind. There was so much she wanted to say, do, try. This habit of living day to day really did complicate one's life. 
She remembered the loneliness of candle sleep, of waking out of beat with her friends' lives. Had a week passed, a month? The memory hurt. She didn't want to go back. But that loneliness added simplicity. Living that way, you did not press against people long enough to bend them, to crease them, let alone to break. Whenever you felt a strange pattern with a colleague or a friend, you didn't have to fix it, just disappear and let the pattern fade. She was done fading. But that meant she might mess this up. And that scared her more than monsters. She'd reached the hotel during her rumination and stepped inside. The early morning street noise stopped. Big hotels like this, with their tiles and stonework and gilt and their hushed polite conversations and their estuary-accented staff, always reminded her of Shanghai, of those great Bund palaces locals only entered as servants or prostitutes, or far more rarely, as police. Those places had not liked her then, and the feeling had been mutual. Still was today, though she took particular pleasure in arriving as a paying client. She walked through the lobby with such purpose they did not challenge her, and pressed the elevator call button, and shouldered into the full elevator when its doors opened. 30th floor, she said, and someone pressed it. The penthouse level needed a key. She could break in from underneath. It occurred to her to wonder, then, where all the suited people in this elevator came from. Underground garage? Perhaps. And why weren't they breathing? She waited. The numbers ticked up. Grace stilled herself. She heard her shirt move when she breathed. The woman to her left, her face began to melt. The man to her right, his eyes grew saucer large and a third eye opened on his head. She felt the fingers of the hand pressed beside her own grow larger, longer, and sharp. And still, nobody moved. So Grace burned and did. At first, Sal heard the crash of breaking stone. The scream of tortured metal came next, high and sharp, and suddenly cut short. Then a rush like a flood. Silence followed ominous and deep and stretching and so absolute she tapped the hilt of her sword against the wall to be sure it made a sound. It did, but that sound took longer than it should have to travel to her ears and reached its destination muffled and confused. But as she turned back to Liam to ask what was happening, the silence broke with a sound like a plate glass window coming down. That was the dry ward, he said, on the curtain wall. We have the fires next and the carpet maze and then the golems. I don't know if they'll slow her down. Sal tightened her grip on the sword and waited. A song drifted down the winding stair, echoing and high, but it stopped with a rush of tearing cloth. A bell rang, an avalanche rolled down a high mountain pass, and the stairwell and the bedrock shook. We can do this, she said. A door opened far above. Footsteps echoed down the stair. Louboutins descending regular as a countdown clock, and behind and beneath and ahead of them came the flood. The first monster rounded the corner at a dead sprint, taking the stairs five at a time, a big thing like a dog with six legs and an upside-down head. Liam hit it in the face, and it fell, and he followed it to the floor. A translucent bulb of flesh scuttled down after on four tall, spindly legs, the mouth gaping with glass-sharp teeth. And Sal put herself between Liam and the thing and swung her sword and felt a stab of triumph as it cut through and the creature toppled. They could do this. They were doing it. She rammed her sword into the flesh sack just to be sure, but as she turned away, something child-sized and heavy struck her in the side. Her head rang off the stones and her sword thunked against the ground, or maybe the other way round, but whatever the order, she was down and a sticky mass of blood flowed on top of her, prying at her mouth, squeezing her neck. Her fingers found the sword hilt, and half-blind, she pressed its blade to the hands around her neck. The sword guided itself through skin and tendons, and the hands let go. Coughing, she found her feet and cut a giant snake off Liam, who recovered just in time to tackle something like an inside-out baboon that had lassoed Sal with a rope made from its own intestine. She lost track after that. 
They poured down, soundless, some massive and others tiny, skittering, furious. And she and Liam fought and screamed and breathed and hurt. At first, triumph blossomed. How amazing that they'd made it this far, that they worked this well together. Exhaustion came after, and pain. They didn't give up, but that could only carry them so far. Lactic acid built and used muscles, bruises and strain turned joints in ways that weren't supposed to go. There were limits to how fast she could breathe, how fast oxygen could enter her blood, how long her heart could beat, and how long she could swing a sword. After the exhaustion came a growing satisfaction that scared her more than the fear. They had done so much. It had to be enough. If she slipped up or he did and one of them died, or both, who would claim they'd not done all they could? That was the easy way out. That was the danger. The flood stopped. Sal didn't realize it at first. She turned in place, one circle, two, sword tip low with her exhaustion. But no more monsters came. She laughed and heard herself as if through water. Liam stood, breathing hard, in blood up to his shins. His ripped clothes barely registered in the mess of him. A flap of skin hung down his forehead toward his swelled shut eye. He kept trying to close his right hand and could not. Sal's body tingled with adrenaline. She could not put weight on her left leg. She could not feel her own body, not really, and could only tell how bad she'd had it by the way Liam looked at her, which was about how she figured she was looking at him. And still the footsteps, closer now. She saw the blood before she saw the shoes. Little red-black tendrils of it trickled down, explored, drank. Larger swaths followed, hard and glossy curves, wet like the inside of an insect shell. And then she saw the shoes, and Ingrid in her white suit, softly smiling and immaculate. The blood trailed her like wings and a train. Sal tightened her grip on the sword hilt. Liam tried to close his hand again and failed. And Ingrid looked so fresh. You, she said, are in my way. Sal raised her blade and charged. Grace limped into the penthouse. She trailed bloody footprints back to the wrenched open elevator doors. She was breathing hard and she'd been cut in places, but the other guys had it worse. Hell, the other guys weren't even guys. She'd spent nine months in that elevator. Nine months of mornings and laundry, and nine months of deciding what's for breakfast. Nine months of Sal's nights and her days. Back when Grace had been a weapon, she would not have cared. How could a gun begrudge the use of ammunition? Her time was hers alone. When she ran out, she ran out. Victory had a price, the world had a price. When you had to, you paid it. But she was trying so hard to be a woman now. A woman lived life. She did not spend it. And a woman could lose. Out the high windows to her right, mountainous demons twisted in a flat pink sky. Out the high windows to her left lay the city and the sea. She had spent nine months already. There might be time later for the view. She walked through the door into the back. The mounded suitcases and unmade bed were of no concern. Yusef's daughter sat, her hair cut short, in a silver cage beside the bathroom door. Her eyes went wide when she saw Grace. Grace snapped the cage lock and helped her out. Catherine started to speak, but Grace shook her head. Run. You can come in whenever you like. Gala's voice filtered in from the bathroom, high and dreamy. It's all fine here. Kusrin ran. Grace took a deep breath, rolled her shoulders, and walked into the bathroom. Liam had described a hot tub full of blood, but most of that had drained, off with Ingrid, no doubt, to hurt her friends. What remained curled in braided ropes around Gala's body and twisted through the room into pits it had dug into the wall. A nest of tendrils held the shimmering lotus over Gala's navel. Gala's eyes were blue with lotus light and her teeth bared in a delirious, hungry grin. Grace burned toward her.
and stuck. Ingrid was so close. After all those tiresome rituals, not to mention the absurd convulsions of scheming and scheduling required to make it this far, she could soon set this distraction aside and get back to the important things in life, none of which, in her experience, required nearly so much dry cleaning. She battered the book burners back through the door someone had no doubt thought themselves very clever for hiding. They fought well, but they were tired, hurt, and oh, so slow. And Ingrid had all the time in the world. At least in theory. But she had to experience it the long way round, and she felt so completely and utterly done with this nonsense. She refused to spend another instant covering her tracks or being careful. So she marched into the alabaster room and found the priest there, manning a table full of magics and instruments and dials, the tools he'd used to keep her out and delay this mind-numbing process. She ignored him and marched past toward the door behind which waited everything, or at least some of it. Once they'd gained control of a single pillar, they could seize the others at their leisure. Gala had tried once in great detail to explain to her why one was enough for their purposes, but Ingrid only pretended to follow the math. Her blood claws plunged into the stone door and pulled. The priest ran toward her. She hit him with a wave of blood and he fell. You should have run, she told the priest. You should have taken the chance I offered. This isn't about you. You don't matter to us. We wouldn't have chased you. It was a nice plan to delay me, but honestly, you see how it looks, don't you? Standing in front of more magic than you've ever seen. The power to build a world or end one. And using these toys against me. Pathetic, isn't it? She held the priest in blood and squeezed. Give her time, he breathed out. Her? Your friend back at the hotel? She stopped. Grace can burn time, but the Lotus controls it. We've known about you, you see. We knew about your friends in the Vatican, all their strengths and weaknesses, and we knew yours. It wasn't that hard. The alabaster door cracked and pink mist flowed out from the fissure. The great engines behind the walls shuddered. Ingrid marched forward into triumph. But someone was already there. Not Grace the priest said, Asante. Asante stood in the pillar of the world and tried to understand. The room was a hollow ball, half rock and half sky, and the sections unfolded into one another like lenses opening and closing, or eyes. The skies were all different, and so were the stones, and when a given section of wall passed back around to stone or sky, it had changed. The room was neither in the world nor out of it, was not even a room in any way that mattered. At its heart hovered a turning sphere. There were spheres within spheres, in fact, half solid and half made of light, as if solidity itself was a dimension through which the system moved. It was working. She just did not know how. When the door ripped off its hinges and Ingrid stepped through, she realized she was out of time. She thrust her hand into the mashing gears as if into a pool of water and waited for the crunch. And felt it. Bones split, skin tore. The revolving machine rebounded, shifted around her hand. And then the power came. Ingrid boiled toward her across the room and spears of blood leapt from her outstretched hand. Asante knew a simple protective charm, nothing grand, a few lines to be muttered in a hurry. She'd never used it to stop more than a paper cut, but those words slipped from her now, and they blunted Ingrid's blades and turned her spears. The machine groaned and shuddered. The smooth transitions in the walls skipped, and she saw cracks on the stone. But Ingrid was closer, and speaking, too, fast, in an Enochian dialect heavily influenced by old High German. And the machines twisted back again, dust raining from the walls, bits of rock tumbling down. Fire roared about Asante's feet, but she spoke the name of water, and it stilled and sank. She tried to freeze Ingrid in her steps, but she marched on and closer, and now she was not talking to Asante at all, but to the machine. And Asante realized she had been wrong before. She had not been using the machine to aid her incantations. She had just been closer to it, inside it, 
and that gave her spells more weight. But Ingrid was chanting to the machine itself, offering, inviting, and it flickered and gave itself to her. Asante countered and spoke the machine's name, too, addressing it through the pain it had given her. She felt as if she stood on the skin of an enormous, hungry beast. And now, for the first time, her cries and protests and stamping feet attracted its notice. And its mouth yawned wide. She felt the world, seething fault lines underground and in the sky, the fundamental courses of water all turning somehow into this machine, driven by it. And Ingrid was here already, moving unspeakably fast, claiming it gear by gear, sector by sector, tireless and full. And anywhere in this vast globe where Asante ran, she was there first, wild-eyed and oh, so hungry. Grace hung over the tub, her hand outstretched. She was a sculpture, a piece of crystal suspended by fine tricks and fishing line in the air. She might as well have been, for all she could move or fight. Ropes of blood rose from the bath, from Gala. They stroked Grace's cheek and curled around her limbs. Time was going on somewhere, just not for Grace. She burned. She fed the candle weeks and her fingers twitched, but the lotus shimmered on Gala's belly and Gala's mouth curled into a cool and haughty smile. Pavel wanted to take you apart, she said. Perhaps once Ingrid's done, I'll get to try. She let out a sharp, pained breath. Oh, I won't have long to wait. What did that mean? Grace couldn't ask, but her brain ran ahead. Ingrid must have made it through, or if she hadn't yet, she would soon. And through meant through Sal. Sal needed Grace to win, to live, to come back to her. But Grace was also counting on Sal to make sure she survived, to make sure there was a Sal to come back to in the first place. Grace could not let her down. She was not a weapon anymore. Fine. A weapon could not sacrifice itself. Far away in London, a flaming pillar burst from Grace's candle wick. Wall paint bubbled and ran. Wax poured down. Grace had nine years left. Eight now. Seven. She saw the lotus smoke and turn. Saw Gala's eyes widen and tighten as she tried to compensate. But the lotus was blinding hot and fierce. A burning filament so bright it made the white tiles gray. Six. Five. She hated these people for what they'd done, but hate was not enough. She scorned them. They hid and curled around themselves. They sent others to do their killing. Ingrid passed her exhaustion and pain to her sister so she did not have to feel it. They talked about their dear brother, but they'd left him to rot twice when it suited. They hid in shadows and they never paid their own price. She descended dreamlike toward the tub, her hand inches from Gala's throat. Four years left. Three. Gallus screamed, and the lotus's power bore down on Grace, all its crystalline certainty locking her into a single instant. She heard a loud, high, musical note as the crystal's petals cracked. Not enough. She needed more. Three years. She shoved them faster to the fire. I'm sorry, Francis. I'm sorry, Perry. I hope the school doesn't burn down. I'm sorry, Arturo. I know we had so much left to work through. And Sal. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The lotus shattered. Grace's fist blurred forward and she felt her knuckles break on Gala's face and felt bones shatter and cartilage pulp. And the blood, those ropes of it that held her fast. It was just blood again and falling. And then the sonic boom hit her hard. Asante was losing. Ingrid was too ready, too strong, too fast by far. And then she wasn't. Her chance broke. The blood that warded her and made her strong melted and burned away. Her hold on the machine slipped. 
The powers she had woken, all the machine's great systems she had twisted to her will, tore through her. She burned and snapped and fell. And all that power, all the weight of all the worlds, settled on Asante. Five. She did not die. Not at first. That was a surprise. The world turns. We all know this, only it's so big that we forget until something spoils our forgetting and we feel it spin. Imagine being large enough to feel it all the time. Imagine standing at its heart, not the center of its matter, but the secret core that drives the world's spin and allows it to continue. Imagine you set your hand upon that heart and could press or pull or change. The world turned around Asante. She could hear where it went wrong. The weaknesses of flesh fell away, the narrow doors of perception flung wide by her contact with the machine. The machine enlisted all things useful in its service. Why not her intellect as well? It needed her. There were leaks, imbalances, protests from this corner of the machine or that. Gears ground, wheels squeaked, and bands pulled and frayed. The system was not built for this kind of strain, but she could fix it. It begged her to, it pulled her in. First she focused on the gears. She forced them right with the thought, but more cracks spread in the stone on the walls, and she felt tremors in the earth thousands of miles away. Great shattering pulses that brought high buildings down and split cities in half, and anyway, pressing down against the gears made the wheels screech more. So she let the gears go and turned her attention to the wheels, which slowed under her attention, even as fibers snapped in the timing band, and on the other side of the globe, a confluence of heat and air currents shifted and gave birth to a century storm. And the band frayed on. She could fix this. She had to fix it. The load was the problem. So many minds pulling in so many directions, so much rage and hate and fear. So many vivid dreams of the world to come. Unite the fears, forge them, and relieve the strain in the process, and perhaps the weight would ease. But when she tried to focus on anything smaller than a continent, her attention fuzzed out and she lost control. This machine was not built to work small. She found herself weighing, just as a question, an exercise, continents, and deciding which one she should sink. She heard a voice, a small, distant voice, so far away. A man's voice, a friend's. Father Manchu was approaching her in the room that was not a room, where her body was, and some part of herself, still. Asante, he said, listen to me. Come back. Moving her body again felt strange, like the world did when she tried to handle something too small. Arturo, I can fix it. I see how. It doesn't all have to break. Not all of it. That's what they wanted. Hana, too. Don't do this. We've been looking for an answer, she said. A way to save the world. This is it. I just needed perspective, a place to stand. They were evil, but evil people can find the right answers. The room ground and tore around her, the gears and wheels and bands all straining, the catastrophe engine in desperate motion. And Manchu offered her his hand. His eyes were wide, his shirt and collar streaked with blood. Asante, they found their answers. Are you saying you can't find a better one? The solution hung there, beautiful, parsimonious, perfectly balanced, elegant in its simplicity. But a right answer could still be bad. She pulled herself out of the machine. It did not want to let her go. She was such a helpful mind, such perspective, brilliant at error catching. Surely she should stay. She should give herself to this. But she owed herself to others first. With a cry of triumph and despair, Asante pulled her hand out of the machine. It refused to let her go, but she was no one's servant. There were other battles to fight, and other better answers to find than the ones this dumb thing had given her. And the machine, 
stopped. Sal came back to consciousness slowly, then all at once. She heard falling rocks and grinding gears and screams, and found her feet, only they weren't actually there, so she had to slip and fall and find them all over again. But when she made it up, she saw the blood, and Liam recovering, and the wreck of the alabaster room, and the open door beyond. She started running and almost fell then, too, but caught herself on the cut lip of the alabaster door. In front of the room, where they were never supposed to go, the room where Asante had promised to touch nothing except as a last resort. Well, the resort fell pretty last to Sal. And they weren't dead yet, so that counted for something. Asante crouched in the center of the room, curled around her broken hand, and Manchu sat beside her, holding her. The room looked perfectly ordinary otherwise, save for the machine hovering in its center. The machine, too, seemed ordinary, safe, of course, for the hovering. And the fact that it had stopped. She heard slow, droll applause, and for a moment froze, thinking, Ingrid, she's still alive. That's not her body on the floor. But Manchu looked up and said, You, dripping venom. And if that wasn't enough of a clue, Sal recognized the voice that answered him. I can't believe you people. Sal took a deep breath and turned. I thought you were gone, she said. I thought you flounced off and left us to our own devices. A woman with silver eyes stood in the alabaster doorway. When Sal had first seen her, Hannah had looked like this. Short hair, bluntly handsome, a figure made in a mold. But that was just one form, and as Hannah stopped clapping, she flowed to other shapes. A young boy, an old man, Sal's mother, herself again each form a facet of the entity. And I thought you lot had caused enough trouble already. But here we are. Do you have any idea what you just did? Using the pillars for tug of war like that? Breaking one? I had gone off into the outer realms to spend a very long time in the shape of a tree, eating whoever happened to wander by, until I forgot all about this damned project. You have no idea what a mess you've made. There's as much causality leaking from our project into the outside now as there is outside flowing in. And every time I turn around, somebody's bothering me about it. We're trying to survive, Sal said. That, Hannah replied, is not my problem. You've made it clear you don't want my help. And now you're causing even more trouble. So that's it. Project's over. We can't just let it sit here decaying and ruining everyone's day. It'll take a little while to close things down properly, but consider yourself warned. Past time, really. Shame to see. Enjoy it while it lasts. Sal ran for her, but her arms closed on empty air. She turned back to Manchu and Asante. What now? Asante leaned on Manchu, and together they stood. Her voice was shaky, but she spoke. No. We find a better answer. She held out her broken hand. In the ruined palm, she held something brown and small and hard. What's that? I don't know, Asante said. But I think it's a seed. Grace and Kasrin stumbled from the Ritz after the earthquake stopped. Broken glass littered the sidewalk, and somewhere a car alarm blared. Grace walked slowly and carefully. She could not afford to lose any more time. She didn't know if they were alive or dead, or how much time had passed since she hit the wall. She woke up to find Kasrin slapping her cheek, trying to wake her up. She was coated in a thin layer of dust, and there was a foul taste in her mouth, and somewhere an alarm was going off. She'd told the girl to leave, yes, and she had. But then she came back for her. Grace blinked in the fierce sunlight and shaded her eyes. She tried not to run the math again, but it was simple math. She had the answer as soon as thinking. Six months of her candle left. Maybe less. Now what? Kasrin asked. 
She was still looking for the answer when a black van screeched up to the curb. Heavy tires crushed glass. Grace crouched in front of Kesserin and raised her hands and tried not to think about six months and candle flames and how long it had been since she'd had a real fight without moving at least a little fast. But the van's door rolled open in there, bloody, bruised, face swollen, but still, was Sal. And everything else could wait. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. The bridge between men and machine. What kind of change? One that changes everything. The organic and the digital. His head, it's metal. The ability to record every human sense. Everything anyone could ever see or hear gets recorded. Any human being could be a spy. This chip will allow us to know everything, as will the people we sell it to. They'll see all the data. Don't you get it? There is no one that can stop us. Hey, Rockstar. The Rapscallion Agency, a new audio drama from the creators of The Leviathan Chronicles, follows two of its youngest characters, Lizette and Cluricane, who move to Paris. Oh, so, Cluricane is in Paris. Welcome to Paris. And find themselves entangled in a sinister plot to control the world's most sensitive information. I can take them out. I said there were three of them. Now there's two. Get out of here. No one is going anywhere. Leviathan Audio presents The Rapscallion Agency, available November 1st. Subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts. Spotify or at realm.fm.